Sahana Bhavatu, Sahana Bunaktu, Sahabiriam Karababa Hai, Tejas Vinava Titamastu, Ma Vishava Hai, O Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Hey yogis, this is another conversation from during the pandemic, but it's with my teacher, Raghunath, who's an amazing person, amazing teacher. I'm excited to share this with you. Check it out. Let's make it official. Um, Raghunath, welcome to Yoga Talk. Honored to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. So I just wanted to sort of let everybody get to know you a little bit. Um, and I was reading over your bio that's on your website. And so just a little bit of background. You grew up in Connecticut slash New York City, yes? Yeah, I'm 54 years old now, so mm -hmm. you can do the math. <laughs> I used to, I'm from a New York City family, but we grew up in Connecticut. And then when I was 14, I used to just take off and head to New York City on the weekends. I was into punk, hardcore music alternative music, anything that wasn't mainstream in the eighties was like a whole different genre. Yeah. So we just go there and hang out. And, and it's there that I first sort of um, started just because New York was, I was, I sort of felt like I didn't belong in, belong in my high school. I just was sort of like a nonconformist. And um, when you go to New York city back in the eighties, it was filled with a bunch of freaks. <laughs> so I could relate to them because I felt sort of like a freak in my high school. And so from there, I got into Eastern spirituality, vegetarianism, which was very freaky back then, even though it's completely mainstream now. Yeah. Um, Eastern spirituality and um, just sort of alternative living and alternative thinking. And then at 22, uh, I moved into an ashram and went to India. I was in a band. I was in a punk band. I traveled all around America and Europe. Yeah, pretty popular band. It's youth of today, right? Yeah, there was like a big cult following all around. And we were into clean living and vegetarianism with a twist of with a twist of concepts of karma theory and all the stuff I was reading, Dhammapada, Buddha Sutras, New Testament, Bhagavad Gita. It sort of tied into the themes. What got you interested? I mean, I, I know you said you you sort of like found Eastern spirituality back then in, you know, in New York, but like, what was your first experience with it? Like what hooked you in? Well, I got me, I got interested cause I feel like written into the, the yogic thought is a very wide gate understanding of spirituality. Meaning spirituality is not my church versus your church versus your mosque, your versus your temple. But the idea is that everybody's a spirit. And every spiritual tradition is a way of connecting with spirit. That's actually woven in the teachings and that you don't have to be converted to it. It's what we inherently are. We just forgot that we are. And, and then because we forgot we're spiritual beings, we run around pathetically to try to find happiness in the material world, but we ne neglecting our real hunger, which is um, a, a spiritual hunger. And so we try to shove material things in that spiritual hole. And therefore there's a dissatisfaction in the heart. So there's a, a, a reoccurring, uh, a reoccurring uh, feeling that I was having, like I'm surrounded by people. I feel alone. I feel disconnected, even though I might be, get a lot of accolades or a lot of validation. I feel, I, I feel disconnected. I want, there's a desire to be connected. I know I have a source. I know I'm part of something bigger, etc. Let's hear what the ancients of the other worlds, previous generations said. And so truthfully, it was more, I, before I got into yoga, I got into vegetarianism and vegetarianism led me to healthy diets. And then I got the one book out that was on Ayurveda back then. There was only one <laughs> book printed in America in 1987. As far as I knew, uh, Dr. Feraldi's book. And um, I took a course and I've met, I randomly met an Ayurvedic doctor. And um, he, I took a workshop, a, 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 you, know, you know, a weekend immersion in Ayurveda to try to figure out 
okay, I got to stop. I want to be a vegetarian growing up in an Italian family. I have to stop eating like, uh, you know, pizza and Coca-Cola or I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to learn how to cook things and how to balance my doshas. And, and so from 1987 on, I started adopting that uh, diet and then I uh, got a job at a vegetarian restaurant in the Lower East Side. And um, from there, it just sort of took off from there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was more, sort of like, that was my entrance into yoga and my entrance into, because from, I understood like, okay, these people there have a lot of information. It's just, did you, anybody see a kid with a chicken come in here? Yeah, there was definitely just a rooster bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Out of here. No respect for their dad at work. <laughs> Moseyed in with a chicken in his hands. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, so you, so in 80, 87, 88, you said you went to India and I went to India in 88. Yeah. yeah. For my first time. Nice. Yeah. And then, but it was, it was a, it was a distinct time because it was a sort of like the height of my success in my music. And it was a time where I was just really, and maybe you can relate to this over the material world. I was only 22, but at that point in my life, I felt like, you know what? I'm good with the material world. I need a spiritual life. So my real take, really my real dip into yoga was not for, like sometimes you go to classes and I'll teach handstands or dropping back to, from scorpion to a wheel and kicking back to chaturanga. And so I got sort of popular for, um, you know, advanced asanas, probably before a lot of people were doing them in yoga classes. But it's, I didn't get into that till later. I actually got into yoga because I was on a spiritual quest and um, I, I couldn't really, back then I, I never thought of myself as an athlete. I looked at myself more as a, like a, a searcher or a seeker. And I felt like the, the teachings of India explained it in such a, a very wide way, a very broad way, an ecumenical way that it, 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 I felt welcome without judgment. That's amazing. Yeah. So 88 was the time I just quit my band and I became a monk for about six and a half years. Were you in India that whole time? No, I, I started off in India and then I traveled all over um, Europe and America in different ashrams. And then um, I go back, keep going back to India. Mm-hmm. I still keep going back to India. Yeah, just keeps attracting me back. Life. I, I, got, I had the honor of spending a month there with you over the past winter and I had the honor of spending a month there with you. <laughs> it it's amazing just the the culture the spirituality it it just like sinks into you and starts to put its hooks in like you you feel like it you really have to go puts back. Its hooks in. yeah yeah um the mm-hmm. most common the most common thing i hear when we come back is from from students is i gotta get back there I got to get back. Cause what happens is you get like a taste. Just like you can get addicted to anything. And oftentimes the addictions are pretty bad. You get addicted to a type of, an, of a feeling or an emotion that you cannot even explain. I'm sure you had this experience, Seb. You can't even explain it to a friend back home. It's like you try to explain, you're like, why am I explaining this? It makes no material sense whatsoever. Yeah. You know? You're, wait, wait a second. You are on vacation, but you're waking up early, but you're sitting on the floor, but you're you know bathing in a river. What? It like makes, usually when America thinks of vacation, think I want to go to Aruba. I got this great place in the Bahamas. I got, you know, where everything is pristine. And if you know India, it's not so pristine. It's been a lot of places. Yeah. And it's so what, sometimes it's so not yeah. pristine. <laughs> so I think, I think the, the beauty of it is you tap into a pleasure that's not of this world. And I, I can, the best way I can explain it is, when I first went to India, even though I was on a spiritual quest, you know, I was a New York kid hanging out in the, in the ghetto of New York. And so I had like street smarts and I didn't trust people and I was a cynic. And so when I got to India, I was thinking, who are these guys? You know, these monks, what are they? You know, I've got some money, they want my money. You know, it's like this non-trusting attitude. You guys probably aren't like that, but I was like that. And then when I saw the way the monks lived and i realized these guys have nothing they're all the ways i get fun i like to stay up late like to go out 
They didn't do that. They went to bed early, 8.30. They started going to bed at 8.30 at night. It was like before the sun even sets, you know? Um, it's cold in the winter. Winters are cold in India. Summers are hot. It's just before, in 1988, there was no cell phones. There was no, like, there, we didn't have heaters in the winter, you know? And we didn't have air conditioning. It was just like cement rooms. Basically, it was like camping out, you know, in an <laughs> ashram. And everybody was barefoot. And there was no, like... There was no nothing. You couldn't mail letters. The post office didn't work properly. There was no emails. There's one phone in the entire village. The electricity would go out for like, you know, 14 hours. And so you're sort of like at the mercy of like the elements. And another thing about being a monk, there was nothing to buy. There was a lot of pleasure in buying. Uh, you know, eating was at regulated times. We were monks, so we didn't have sex. We didn't have girlfriends. So the, quest the question is like, where are you getting your happiness from? Hmm. Where you, where, these are all the things the whole world is doing to have fun and you're not doing them you're actually voluntarily giving them up yeah. so two things happen here one is you get you crack and i've seen it happen a lot of times monks i can't do this a new monk and or what happens is you start to click in to an internal type of pleasure. That's different than going out to get that pleasure. You're forced to go in to get this pleasure. So when I first got there and I saw the monks and the joy that the monks had, and what were they sleeping? They're sleeping on the floor. You know, and I'm, they're sleeping with nothing. They're waking up at 2.30 in the morning. They're taking cold showers in the winter and they're taking hot showers because the water's stored on the roof. So in the summer, in that excruciating heat, there's hot water coming out of those tanks. And so it's like, you cannot win if you're trying to enjoy through your senses, it's a no win. So where is their pleasure coming from? It's gotta come from some more subtle place. And that's what attracted to me. It was no one preaching to me. It was no some, some, someone, you know, Bible thumping or Bhagavad Gita thumping to me. But when I saw the joy in their eyes, I thought they have something that I want. Yeah. And they have nothing. Yeah. They have something I want, but they have nothing. Where are they deriving their joy from? And I thought, ooh, this is the trick of life. I'm spending, my culture is spending all our time cons with consumption. We're trying to find pleasure through consumption. And everybody's brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. And they're actually going without and connecting how can I get that? And I realized that was valuable. And I used to, th all that cynicism I came to India with, which, oh, these guys want to get my money. These guys want, I realized I don't have anything to offer these guys. I'm like a, probably a bother to them, but they have everything to offer me. And right. so then I really wanted to taste that magic and feel what that magic is. And it made me realize there is magic in this world. And I was just looking for my pleasure in all the wrong places. Pleasure is, is more subtle. And all the yogis speak about this. And now I finally get to see it. Yeah. That, that, and that's what my first like big, strong faith was in. At first I got some attracted to the philosophy because the philosophy of yoga is very deep and it's attractive. You know, you're a spiritual being, you're born to give love, you're eternal, you're blissful, you're filled with insight. That's like, in, that's interesting. You know, we're all meant to reconnect. That's the goal. Every spiritual tradition is meant to reconnect with the divine. The soul is eternal. You keep on coming back until you get it right. You can't make this. If you say, make the same mistakes, you keep on coming back. You have to make a better choice each time to evolve. That all resonated with me. People can upgrade or degrade according to their choices. Hmm. You make a bad choice, you degrade. That's kind of, I get that. I've made that. I've, I've, eat, I've overeaten. I felt degraded, Right. You know, I, I, I've used my body inappropriately. I felt degraded. I used my senses better. I used my senses to uplift me. I used my conversation to degrade myself or my conversation to uplift me. I get it that every moment there's a different choice taking me north or south. Yep. Right? So I, I, I got the philosophy. It was enough to get me on the Delta 747 to New Delhi. <laughs> and then, um, then I had to figure it out from there. But once I got there, it's one thing to say, I believe in this philosophy. It's another thing to take off all your clothes, throw them away, put on a robe, you know, become a celibate at 22 yeah. and wake up at 2.30 in the morning. That was like a whole nother deal. To and take so, that step. Is, huh? 
to take that step is no joke. It wasn't. You had to, you had to be really fed up with the material world. And I, I think I qualified in that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so you, you reference your teachers a lot. And I really, I really respect that and love that about you. Like somebody gives you a compliment and you're like, no, it's, it's just because of my teachers and what they taught me. Um, and I think that's something that's lacking a lot in the yoga community these days. Everybody's out there to make a name for themselves and they're never sort of referencing their teachers and giving them honor. And I was wondering who, so you were saying like you went over there looking for spirituality. Who did you end up studying asana with when you started actually practicing? Well, I started practicing asanas before I went there. Okay. And I went, I did that at, with uh, Swami Satchidananda's people and Dharma Mitra's people. Um, but it was the yoga philosophy that got me hooked. Mm -hmm. Many yoga ashrams, believe it or not, don't even practice the physical path, physical practice. I don't think a lot of people realize that. You know, people don't realize that because we're asana heavy in the West. But, you know, as, and as you travel through holy places, and I'm not talking about just like India, holy places, fam places famous for yoga, Rishikesh, Haridwar, all, all the famous yoga places, you start to see that asana is a condiment to a much greater meal. It, it, you know, it's condiments or condiments. There's salt, sea salt, chutney, ketchup. That's a condiment. It's not a meal. <laughs> We've taken that condiment and made it the meal. And right. then we get, then we start to wonder why it's, why we are incredibly great at vinyas, why we can do so many acrobatic things, but no one's becoming a transcendentalist, <laughs> right? You could do vinyas for years and still not be a transcendentalist. You can be completely wrapped in your body. You can be wrapped in your ego. Right. And so um, that, that those two go together very well because one of the ABCs of training, getting trained is starting to realize that Everything, uh, uh, everything is by the mercy of people putting me on a path, putting me on a path towards spirit instead of, there's two, there's two paths basically. It's a fork in the road. And when you hit that fork every moment, there's a path of love, truth, light, God, whatever you want to call higher power, or is it uh, ego uh, or the path towards ego, self-absorption, narcissism, I'm the center, illusion. And so when you first meet what's called a, a guru that teaches you sat, guru means a teacher. So you can have a martial arts teacher, an asana teacher, a math teacher. But when you meet a, a guru who teaches you eternality of the soul, which is the spiritual facets of yoga, then you start to realize, wow, that person, it's almost like you're driving a train and that person was like in the conductor booth that pulled the lever. And now the train, which was going full speed south, now it's going north. And so I was just going full speed, but it's by my teacher's mercy that they pulled that. They pulled that. They entered into my life, touched my heart and changed my direction. Just like you can have, you can be a great artist. You can be a great musician. You can be a, a, a great math or filled with, filled with uh, knowledge. You can be great at asanas. But if I'm doing them for my own ego aggrandizement, what good is it? Right. Any of that stuff. I can be the best artist. I mean, unbelievable. But if it's all about me and my ego, hey, what do you think of my art? You didn't think that's great? You realize like, first of all, you're going to suffer. When you're in your ego, you suffer. You're in pain. You're sad. You want, you're desperate for validation, right? Or you do this as an offering. And so that's the alchemy of the yoga, the yogi. They start to realize that everything I have, even my own body, even my own talents, even, even my own gifts has been given me from a higher source. And therefore I want to offer them back. And that's what the real guru teaches that this is not even yours anyway. And if you think it's yours, try to keep it. You can't. Everything's on loan to you, sir. It's all a rental. Right. And you have to give it back. And so you either give it back with love and joy and appreciation or you give it back desperately as, as, as cruel time. This is what Tolstoy said. As cruel time strips away everything from your hands. So this is the uh, 
true, man. There's either like deep joy through, through spiritual surrender or there's intense bitterness with the mantra, why me? You know, repeating, repeat, going on loop in my mind. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And it like the yoga philosophy starts to, like when you dig deeper into it, it starts to address those things. Like, why am I here? What am I doing? Who am I? Why am I here? Especially in this age that we live in, because we, we live in an age where people are very busy. But if you ask them why they're busy, they're like, I don't know. I'm just busy. Yeah. And people feel like this. And it's a, it's a feeling that can make you really depressed. It's called, I call it busy doing nothing. Yeah. We feel like really busy. Like I got stuff, so much stuff to do. Well, what are you actually doing? Like, what are you actually focusing on? And oh, I'm, I'm working on a project for my boss or I am the boss. Even if you go to the boss, even if you go to the guy running the company, well, what, what's your goal with this company? Like, where do you want, is it just to accumulate wealth? Is it just, what's, what's the goal of life? Is it just to have a family? Because, you know, my kids got chickens. They have family too. Are we no better than chickens? Are we, all we're doing is laying some eggs and taking care of the chicks and trying to fight off the predators. Is that the goal of life? And so these, this is, you know, what the Greeks say, this is the beginning of human life is to start to question, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose while I'm here? What is my energy while I'm here? Where am I directing my energy? What is my focus? What am I thinking of? What should be my thoughts? What should come out of my mouth? What should I put in my mouth? These are the questions that whenever, just like whenever you get a machine, a complicated machine, how do you work this machine? That's the first question. I got a microphone, got a laptop. How do you work this thing? And if you didn't know what it was, you could use it as a table. You could use it as a game board. You could use it as a coffee rest. Hey, don't, man, don't spill it. You're going to spill the coffee on it. Uh, don't you understand? This is completely delicate. So the body is like this too. It's a delicate machine. And we never got the instruction manual. And we're just sort of playing around with it. And right. we do crazy. I mean, if you think of the gift, you read the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, and you think, actually, you could develop mystical cities with this body. You could actually do that. I mean, just even with the yoga asanas, you know, there was a time that you couldn't do all those poses. And then all of a sudden through a practice, now Zeb's, you know, stellar at yoga, physical yoga practice and spiritual yoga practice. But there was a time when he couldn't do it. But due to meeting some teachers, all of a sudden his body changed. So we have this machine that can change if we just, hear the right things, do the right practices, etc. We didn't even know it was, we didn't even know the potential that it had. Right. And so now we want to, now we want to fully utilize that machine in the same way, you know, oh, this is actually a computer. I can get online with this computer. I can reach the people all over the world with this computer. It's such a delicate machine. And what do people do with the machine? Tonight, I just wanted to forget. So I went to a bar, I got drunk out of my mind. And I woke up on my, you know, I'm thinking of high school. Oh, I woke up on this guy's front lawn. Like that's what we're doing with this machine, this delicate machine. I put, I, I create so much chaos and pain and busyness in my life that I'm distressed by Friday. So I go to the pub and get drunk out of my mind. And then I, I wake up oblivious, I have to sleep in and I wake up sick. That's pleasure. It's almost like that's the pleasure of pouring water on my computer. And then you see like, it makes crazy faces. You know, if you, if you ever spill something on your computer, it'll like make weird things on the screen. Oh, hey, cool things, great things you're making on your screen, but I've ruined my computer. So right. in the name of just like some type of like pause from the pain of material existence, we do things that harm the body, harm the mind, harm our consciousness, harm each other and harm, harm the gift. And life is a gift. The body is a gift. The senses are a gift. The mind, how, how, how should it be used where it's actually fulfilled? And that's sort of like what the yogic path is. And that's not my idea. I'm not trying to sell you on me. I'm just a student like all of you guys. But I'm a, what do you call it? I, I want to figure this out. So I, 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 that's the thing about yoga. We're not trying to create a cult of personality where I'm Raghunath. I'm the dynamic guy. You should all follow me. I'll be, I'll be your guru. Is it, we don't see ourselves like that. We say, I'm a student of my teachers. And how does my teacher see themselves? I'm a student of my teacher, right? They're not trying to like, welcome to my world of Raghunath. It's like, once I start getting like that, I, I, you lose the, the potency of it all. We start yeah. to realize that everything is coming down, it's trickling down, it's a gift. 
And if it becomes a cult of personality, then you've, it's a problem. Yeah. I'm not interested in teaching you my cool take on life. I'm a yoga teacher. My job is to teach yoga. And how does that, how was that taught to me? By my teachers. How was it taught to them? By their teachers. And this gets taught through disciplic chains going back for millennia. Yeah. So if I'm explaining the Bhagavad Gita to you today, it was also explained a hundred years ago to this, a, a student asking a teacher. It was also explained 300 years ago or 900 years ago. And some of the things I say, you guys may be like, right on, Raghunath, that was cool. Guess what? I take no credit for it. It's not mine. You don't have to pat me on the back. It's not mine. I didn't make it up. I'm not that bright. You know? And some of you guys might be saying, yeah, he's a little nuts. He's a little fanatical. He's a little weird. I'm okay with that too. You're not insulting me. It's not mine. I'm just here as yoga teachers. Are you guys all yoga teachers? Uh, teachers and students. Teachers and students. Okay. So it's, it's like we are just here as teachers to present yoga how it's been taught. And what I really have to do, my real work is to get my big ego out of the way and just present yoga. Right. Unfortunately, these days... It's hard for me. I know you're going to say it. it's hard no, no, for no. me. Big ego out of I, like, I, that's one of the things I really appreciate about you. You do get out of the way so much, even though you, like, your personality is big and people like, gravitate towards you. You're always just stepping aside and being like, no, no, it's, it's from my teachers. But there are people out there these days that are turning it into, it's all about me. It's all about my fancy practice. And yeah, it's, you know, it's just, if you can just deeply understand people with the biggest egos are just in pain. So instead of like, it's easy just to hate them, but you should really just feel compassionate for them because I mean, we all know, we've all experienced when we've indulged in our ego, how painful it is. Usually we're desperate. We're reaching for desperate for validation and acceptance. Truthfully, we just want love, but we're just going about it the wrong way. And yeah. so we try to like impress. And, um, but the, it's just like the, the leaves on a, a beautiful oak tree, they're not finding their connection with the other leaves. They're, they're, the leaves are connected, but they're connected through the roots. And so in the same way, my wholeness doesn't come from everybody on the Zoom screen going, thumbs up, Raghu, you're the best. It comes from my connection through my dharma, through my, you know, my, my, my um, uh, integrity-driven lifestyle, and through my connection with source. That's where I find connection. That's where I find my wholeness. Therefore, if the whole world says, you're a loser, or you're a criminal, or you're a jerk, or you're great, or you're the best, or you're the guru... I'm not swayed by public opinion, be it up or down. And it's going to be up and down, right? Yeah. There's certain times historically where people on spiritual paths were crucified. There's certain times historically where people on spiritual paths were risen up, raised high. Sometimes that happens in a lifetime. You're, right. you're worshipped and then you're killed and then you're, yes. you're resurrected. And so this, this is where the yogis get this word, samadhi. It means a sameness, a sameness in Happiness and the sameness in distress. Uh, that's where we get the English word same from, from the Sanskrit word sama. Like there's a yoga pose, sama konasana. So in that same way, we are looking for that sameness. We're not looking to just get material validation because sometimes you're going to get it. Sometimes you're not going to get it. And it's going to cause a lot of pain. We're looking for validation through appropriate works and movement in this appropriate movement in this world. Yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, absolutely. The, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about bhakti, but first, you know, just to sort of like lay that out, like what, what the heck is bhakti? Um, for people that don't know, there are sort of four main paths of yoga in yoga philosophy, yoga tradition, right? Um, the first one is Raja, and that's, that's where asana and pranayama and all that kind of come into play. We manipulate the body to evolve, to, to evolve and to bring our uh, life force to the crown chakra. And we actually, by our intense practice, and it's intense. I mean, it's not an hour and a half a day. It is like 
a life is a lifetime dedicated of renunciation and manipulating the subtle airs in the body to leave your body at an appropriate time. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's nothing that we've experienced in the West for sure. And it's, you don't even see it so much in India. It's, it's, it's a very unique thing. And the people that are really as far as like if you're a if as far as if you've got a husband or wife, it's it's a little impractical. It is for like recluses. This style of yoga. Yeah, they're the ones living in the caves. Yeah, they're trying to isolate. They're trying to do in the grossest way, isolating themselves from the externals, so they can just focus on the internals. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Gyana yoga, which is much more, again, it's sort of renunciation. It's like letting go of everything and just focusing on the, the mental, right? Sure. All of them have some types of renunciation mm-hmm. because, I mean, a lot of us can relate to this already in our life. Maybe we were teenagers and we were indulgent. And we, we got to a point where like, I can't indulge anymore. Or we got, went through a 12-step program or we just whatever we've just been indulging we realized i don't want i I overate i gotta stop overeating whatever i did it sexually whatever it was we got to a point where like there is a limit to how much i can enjoy through this thing and this is not just yogi's things any thoughtful people from shakespeare to right aristotle they would say things like that that there's a limit to how much you can enjoy through your senses and therefore uh there's got to be some more internal pleasure. What's internal pleasure? I don't want fun. I want happiness. And so this is, this is the difference. So every facet of yoga has some type of renunciation. Mm-hmm. But in bhakti, you're actually in the world. And it's a very practical type of yoga because you're not renouncing. Like I was a musician for a while when I was younger. But you don't end... All right, this is a good analogy. I was a musician. I was in a band. And even though I liked it very much, I I, I liked to do it. And I was good as a performer. And people liked it. And it was a pretty good message. I found myself getting caught up in my ego. I found myself getting caught in competition. I found myself getting caught up in... um, uh, all the other things that come in your ego, lust and greed and envy and anger, all the things that the yogis say are the original contaminants of the pure spirit. Everybody is a pure spirit. Everybody I'm looking at on Zoom right now is a pure spirit. But some of us have just are covered in different ways. And some of us are covered a lot and some of us are covered a little and some of us are not that much covered. And some of us are so covered we have, we're clueless about it and we're all different. And we, I don't know you and I don't know your story and, and we're all works in progress. Some enjoy being covered <laughs> and, and some don't want to be covered anymore. Um, when I say, and who would enjoy being covered? Oh, come on. It means you've never done the same stupid thing twice. Come on. I think it's all safe to say we made that mistake. Um, so I lost my train of thought. Zeb. where were we at? Talking about bhakti and being in the world. Okay, so in bhakti, what we do is, oh, we're talking about music. So I found myself troubled by, those very, by the very activity I liked, music. So what some yoga system would say is, see what happens? You're on stage, you're performing, you're caught up in your ego. No music. Hmm. Some yoga paths would say, you see your problem? You've spoken to people and you've criticized them. You've gossiped. You've hurt their feelings. You've ruined that relationship with your big mouth. No more talking. And there's some yoga paths that don't talk. The Mona Bubba's they're called. So someone say give up music. Someone say give up your talking. Someone say, see your problem, your relationship with food. You've got a problem with food. No more food. Renunciation, <laughs> your diet. Only eat very, very simple things. No spices, just plain dal and rice, boss, nothing more. So there's a whole thing in yogic paths of renunciation. So even bhakti, there's some renunciation, but really what you do is you take your voice, right? You take your musical abilities, you take your talent in art or your dance, you take your um, family, you wanna have a family, and you engage it in a spiritual practice. Because there definitely are things, like, like let's say our voice, 
I've definitely said some things that have hurt people's feelings. I've definitely hurt relationships. I've, I've gossiped in the past. Maybe none of you guys have, but I've gossiped and it feels bad. It doesn't feel good. I think it's safe to say nobody feels good after they gossip. So does that mean that all speech is bad? No, it just means gossip is bad, is being cruel is being bad, saying harsh things to people is bad, not being compassionate is being, when I say bad, I'm saying it does things with complicates your life and keeps you in bondage. I wanna just clarify that word because some people say, well, what is good and bad? The yogis say there is good and bad, things that make you feel free, wholesome, connected, liberated, joyous, those are good. Things that make you feel bound up, miserable, angry, self-absorbed. These are bad because they're not based in reality. Reality is I'm free. I'm a pure spiritual being. I just forgot. So the, the bhakti yogis say, don't renounce it. Just use it for a higher purpose. Don't kill your desire. You're always going to desire things. Use your desire. Desire things that will heal you, bring you higher, lift you up, open your heart. So um, bhakti yoga is the connection through source to source through love. And love becomes the current in why we do everything. And if you're not good at it, that's okay. It's a yoga practice. This is how we get good. So even if I'm teaching yoga, right? Or even let's say, like, let's say taking yoga, right? So here's Raghunath doing yoga. And there's two Raghunaths, Raghunath A and Raghunath B. Raghunath A is doing a handstand in the middle of a packed room, Raghunath A you know, the teacher says, jump to the front of the mat. And Raghunath jumps from down dog to handstand, holds handstand, puts his feet in lotus, goes to his fingertips. And in my mind, Raghunath A is thinking, oh, I'm so cool. Everybody's probably thinking I'm so cool right now. They're probably just looking in their down dog, looking at me like, who is this guy? And I'm feeling good that they all think I'm so cool. There's a type of pleasure in that ego. Then there's Raghunath B, who's doing, he does the same handstand. Everybody else is doing down dog. Teacher says jump forward, he does a handstand. But in his consciousness, he's thinking, handstand strengthen my body. They, it's like getting a massage. It's bringing circulation to my body. It's taking my lower energy, bringing it up to my crown chakra, right? It's purifying this body. It's detoxing this body. It's strengthening my body. Why? My body's not even me. So I can use this body as a vessel to give back for all that I've gotten. Same handstand, two different ways to think about it. Two completely and, different ways. Two different ways. And, you get, and when you do it in different ways, you get different results. Raghunath A will be in bondage because he'll be living by that. When I don't get that validation, I'll suffer. Raghunath B will actually be on a path of liberation. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I'm Raghunath A and I'm not saying Raghunath B. I'm a beautiful blend of both, like a candy cane. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to untangle that and try to pull apart and just be that Raghunath B. But it's, I'm a work in progress. I'm a fumbling fool. <laughs> Part of being human, too. Yeah, well, was, we, we, well, that's, that's a problem. We're not even, according to the yogis, we're not even human. Do you know <laughs> that? Isn't that interesting to think? According to the yogis, according to the Bhagavad Gita, you're not a human. I'm not an Italian American New Yorker. I'm not white. I'm not straight or gay. I am a spiritual being that happens to be in a vehicle. It looks like this. Just like if I get in a Porsche or I get in an Audi or I get in a Volkswagen and due to my attachment, I start to think I'm this. If, if you've ever driven a really nice car, you start to think I'm this, <laughs> right? Or you rent, you know. You guys, uh, if you drive a car that just makes a lot of noise and rattles, you think, oh, this is embarrassing. My car is breaking down. But you're not the car. Due to some attachment, you suffer, right? If someone hits your car, you cry maybe. Oh, my car, right? Or due to an attachment, some guy pulls up at a red light next to you and goes, hey, man, nice car. You think, oh, really? You, you like it? He didn't say he liked me. He said he liked my car. So my attachment makes me enjoy when someone says, hey, you got a cool car, Raghu. And it makes me suffer if some kid with a key scrapes my nice car. Oh, my car. My attachment makes me suffer and enjoy. And it's got nothing to do with me, the driver. And so the yogi is the driver, the, 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 the atma, the spirit, the soul. We don't have a soul. This is the difference between Christian theology or at least how it was explained by my mom. We don't have a soul. 
we are a soul and we have an ever-changing material body that we're renting out for a few days. I'm just renting it out and I'll return it back to the earth. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But, I, but I'm just witnessing it change. I'm witnessing it change from five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old. It's not here anymore. Where's my five-year-old body? It's not here. Even, in, even in your lifetime, you're living in all these different bodies. Even in my lifetime, I've reincarnated. Well, scientists now say every seven years, everything has been replaced. Right. So I'm what, 54? That means at least seven times I've had seven completely different bodies down to the molecule. <laughs> Yet I am here witnessing it. So I, the, the jiva or the soul is the witness of the change. And you know what they also say, which is interesting. We witness our subtle body change too. We're not a mind. We have a mind. We watch the mind. We can witness the mind. We can change our mind, right? We're not the intelligence. We can change our intelligence. We can lose our intelligence. We can gain, gain intelligence. Then the next thing would be the ego. The ego can change according to who you hang out with. So reincarnation, which sounds very lofty, is actually very real because we can reincarnate into a different being tomorrow, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can do it. I mean, I can clean. For example, I did a blood test today for a physical I had to take. And the, the doctor was like, uh, don't, you know, fast for 12 hours. Uh, because um, if I ate uh, ice cream Sunday last night, it's going to show up in my blood work. Um, so if I want to change my blood work, really easy to change your blood work, go on a juice fast for a week. You'll be amazed at how much you change in one week. So we change or reincarnate, like that word means to again get new karna, like new carne. You're again refleshing yourself. <laughs> We're recreating ourselves. All Not just every seven years, yeah, every thought. Yeah. Yeah. Every thought we think. If I'm thinking hateful thoughts, and sometimes things like hate and anger and revenge, they can just start building these like Fibonacci spirals and go out bigger and bigger and bigger. And we start to get angrier and angry and replay angry revenge turbo scenarios in our brain. And it becomes an object of our meditation is revenge or hate or anger, resentment. And so that's problematic. And what we're doing is we are creating ourselves by our thoughts. So that's the real powerful thing about yoga. It starts to work not just on the gross levels, which is all quite amazing. The fact that I can do anything with my body. I was non-athletic, couldn't touch my toes in the, in the so-called prime of my life when I was 18. Um, but, you know, and a lot of us have been in the yoga game. We realized, man, I can do a lot of things with my body people can't do. <laughs> and it's impressive. Yeah. And the real powerful thing is, can I do the same thing with my subtle body? Right. Can I let go of resentment? In the same way I say, do a handstand now. Some people just whoop. How'd they do that, man? Practice. You don't come out of the womb doing handstands. You got to fall down, tip over, go, you know, fall to one side, post the hands. And then eventually do a handstand, boom, come down, chaturanga. So it's a practice. And eventually you, you pick up the practice. Wouldn't it be cool if someone said, let go of resentment? And you just went, okay, gone. How am I supposed to let go of resentment? That guy, that guy was a jerk to me 20 years ago. He robbed everything, took everything from me. She broke my heart. How am I supposed to let go of resentment? It's a practice. Forgiveness yeah. is a practice, right? All these things that we speak about, uh, to learn to see the good in people is a practice. It's a training of our consciousness, of our mind, right? To, to let go of desire for validation, to not be overly concerned about what other people think of me is a practice. So these are all things, if you can start to work on this mastery, which is where yoga eventually leads us to, then we become very, very peaceful and happy in this world. Yeah. Because my real, where does my pain exist mainly? Not in my hamstrings, a little bit. Not in my lower back, a little bit. Not in my, it exists because I live in the ego so much and I want to control things I can't control. That's where my pain is. And asana, I think, is it's a good gateway for it's people gateway. to just start to understand themselves. First of all, we don't breathe. Right. 
<laughs> the first time I ever did yoga, the teacher said, okay, hold warrior one. And I'm just like, oh, every, I'm like, and it's, I was athletic, but I was like, I was choking on my own breath. <laughs> he goes, hey man, just breathe. And so doing these things with your body and staying there and trying to be calm. If you've ever had new people in class that are athletes and they've never done yoga, it's like, Oh, They're yeah. struggling so much in their mind just to yep. stay there in a tough place and be calm. And that's so because working so hard on something to <laughs> let go and relax into it is like impossible. We've trained ourselves it, it, poorly. Yes. We're not going to make us happy in a lot of ways. So a lot of our work as yogis getting into it later in life and not from like early childhood is a lot of undoing. Letting go, yeah. Yeah, letting go, undoing bad habits, you know, redesigning our life, our future, our thoughts. You have to redesign our thoughts. <laughs> I remember being 22 years old. My head hit the pillow at night living in an ashram. The thoughts going through my mind. I had to, re I had to reprogram myself, so to speak. People talk about, oh, it's a brainwashing. Yeah, I hope so. I needed a good washing of that brain. But you talk about that a lot, how we all have this, these mantras running through our mind all the time, and we don't even realize it. Yeah. And a lot of times, it's stuff that we learned very early on, and it's not good for us. From, you know, from, from uh, zero to seven, they say, well, you create your future. Yeah. With the way people treat you, the way people speak to you, and stuff like that. So the mantras that we chant now, when we hear about mantras in India, we think, well, what is this? It doesn't make sense that guru has given me a mantra to chant or this guy is singing with a funky musical instrument in class. I'm supposed to sing back to this mantra. This is weird or this is some weird folk music. But the idea is that as you get more subtle, things become more powerful in your, in your own transformation. It starts with our body. It starts to transform. It starts with our body, the gross earth, right? And then it goes to our breath right? And then it starts to go with sound and all these things. How can sound transform you more than a good do a hundred pushups? Because it's changing the way you actually think. So the mantras that are traditionally supposed to be given from guru to disciple, we've been handed mantras from parents, from, you know, crazy uncles, from teachers, from who knows who's given us a mantra. And it's a mantra perhaps of self-deprecation. You'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. You're a slut. You're good for nothing. Whatever was handed to you and we accepted that mantra. And oftentimes that mantra that we get keeps us on a psychiatric couch, couch for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Keeps us in a box, keeps, a, keeps our um, options limited, keeps us ma making us feel like we have no choice. It's really problematic. So we have to, I think a part of our self-realization process is to realize what are these mantras that were given to me? And are they of any use? What mantras do I have to change? How these mantras in my mind are not me. I've been telling myself I'm worthless. I'm telling, I've been telling myself I'm good for nothing. I'm telling myself I'm unlovable. Those don't serve me and they're not even based in reality. They're just sounds in my mind. You know, sometimes you like live in upstate, you get like a raccoon in your attic or something like that. It doesn't belong. Get the raccoon out. <laughs> you can keep other stuff in the attic. Not, not, no raccoons. You know what I mean? If you come like some raccoons like stirring around, you're like, get it out. Notice it and then get it out. I notice that I hear those footprints, footsteps up there. Get it out. If you've got this haunting sounds in your mind, notice it and replace it. And the yogi's theory is you replace it with mantras that bring you up, that bring you high. And these mantras that we all chant or we chant during that training, they're all these Vishnu mantras that bring you out of your body. I'm not even saying there's, there's even material mantras because Vedic, Vedic teachings are so vast. There's mantras for money. There's mantras for um, uh, health. There's mantras as weapons. There's mantras for snake bite. There's mantras for an unbelievable amount of mantras you could get for obstacles on your path. But the we're not focused on those mantras. We want mantras 
that transcend we want mantras of transcendence transcendence that's what the maha yogi wants uh, mantras that help us transcend the flesh and be connected with spirit that's powerful because the maha mantra Hare Krishna mantra, it doesn't give you what the other mantras give you. The mantra to Lakshmi gives you money, gives you Lakshmi. The, the mantras to the Ashwini Kamars give you health. The Lakshmis to um, Ganapati, Ganesh, give you obstacle, overcome obstacles or success in business. The mantras to Vishnu, they say Vishnu doesn't give you what you want. He gives you what you need. Scary to chant that mantra. Yeah, it's powerful. You got to chant what you need, right? Sometimes we think we chant these mantras and we'll just get shanti. Well, you, know, you know, just peace. Not necessarily true. Maybe you don't need peace in your life. If you actually want to evolve, maybe you need to get shooken up a little bit. Right. Because, right? If we just want peace, there's mantras to chant just to get some peace of mind. You could go, go on. But when you start wanting to grow spiritually and evolve, it's like you're in prison. So if they put you in solitary confinement, you'll get some peace. <laughs> you know, you won't get other inmates hurting you, abusing you, but you're still, you're still in prison. We want to actually get out of prison. Yeah. That's what, tran- that's the difference with transcendence. I just made up that analogy. I really like it. I'm going to go, I'm going to keep that going. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes left, but I really quick wanted to touch on your six pillars of bhakti, because I think that's a really good way for people to start thinking about, like, how can I actually apply this to my life? Um, oh, man, there's all these messages in the chat board I didn't see. So, Sorry, I didn't look at that until now. <laughs> it's okay. Um, six pillars are um, teachings of bhakti but I sort of orchestrated them in a particular order for the main purpose of moving big groups of Americans and Europeans around India. If you've ever traveled with big groups of people through third world countries, Oh, we've got attitudes and we're intolerant and we complain about stuff. And we, um, you know, we don't like the guys in our room with us. So we made sort of a contract. And the contract I extracted from these teachings of bhakti yoga. And if you can apply them to your pilgrimage, when we go on pilgrimage together or our teacher training, or if you apply them to your workplace, or if you apply them to your spiritual life, you'll get so much benefit. So I'll I'll share them with you if you like. But I initially applied them to pilgrimage just so people could have an experience and not live in their mind, which is where a lot of pain comes up. And just my experience in India with 60 people hanging out together for a month. (laughs) Right. And, you know, you put that many people together and there's going to be some sort of conflict usually. And, you know, there were a little bit of things here and there, but following these six pillars, it was an amazing experience where everybody just came together and coexisted. Yeah, it's like a constitution, a constitution or this uh, type of uh, sort of. <laughs> no, I'll just go into it first. The first one is I will not criticize. Now, if you can do that even for six hours a day, you will radically change your life. I will not criticize. If you can do it for 24 hours a day, especially when you're around a bunch of different people in a different place, in a different country, with different food. It's very powerful. When you criticize, you're not happy. Generally, your criticism comes from not being happy and you perpetuate it, but it's a practice. Criticism, finding fault with things is a practice and you get good at it and you start to look for it. You start to look at what she's doing wrong, what he's doing wrong. And it is not based in reality and it's not based in our own um, self-edification. Is trying to find my worth from finding what other people are doing wrong around me. So we, if we can shut the energy, that dark energy coming out of the mouth, it becomes very powerful for you. And it's also not just contaminating for you. Your criticism is contaminating for anybody that hears it. Because ultimately, everybody is a child of God, a, a divine being, etc., whatever you want to call it. 
And therefore, even underneath their, their poor activity that's driving you crazy, they're a spiritual pe- person. And like uh, the, the Bible says you hate the sin, not the sinner. The problem, we suffer today in this world. We really suffer. There's an epidemic of hate much more than there is of COVID-19. There's an epidemic of we hate each other and we are intolerant of each other and we refuse to see good in each other and we're always looking for the differences in each other. And it's a problem. It's a big problem. And you won't be happy. If, 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 if you care about happiness, you're not going to be happy. And you're not going to, the people that you're criticizing, you're not going to even change them. How many times, right? Just suppose you, suppose you adopt a, a dog and the dog is just vicious and mean. How do you think you help that dog become sweet? Beat it? You like beat the dog? You better stop being mean. Boom. That's not going to make the dog sweet. You got you to gotta love them. You got to love. We've replaced love with hate and we think we're doing something good with it. And you know what we have? A whole nation that hates each other. And it's a very... Very sad time, but sometimes it has to get that way. Something's sometimes the whole world has to crumble for some beautiful flowers to grow through it. So that's the first one. I'm not criticized. Second one is I'm tolerant. Tolerance is powerful. Generally, criticism with people, tolerant with places. I'm tolerant with where I'm going to um, accept what I can't change. The twelve-step people say this: accept what I can't change. You know, change what I can. And then if I can't change it, I just accept it. We're learning to deal with this if we're all in a, living in a pandemic. I can't change it. I've been trying to change things I can't change. I've been miserable. So we learn to tolerate it. We try our best to change and we realize this is out of my hands. All I can change is my reaction to things. And that becomes very powerful. When you become intolerant, it's as if you're marrying into misery intolerant people will suffer. Okay. The third one is really, really powerful. It's changed my life tremendously because I must have a deep samskara for this, but it's, I take no offense. Meaning no matter what people do to me, I've trained my mind that I'm not offended by it. That's a hard one. It's very difficult because I've been trained to, I've been, I've been trained to be hurt especially if you've been hurt in the past, then you're always looking for someone to hurt you again. Uh, just see, my theory is correct. People are not to hurt me. And sometimes we even look for it. Like sometimes there are someone, I'm, I'm looking at the Zoom crowd, cl- uh, cloud, uh, Zoom group rather, and I'm seeing Myra and Angelica. So I don't see their faces. It's just says she's their name. So in my mind, I could, I could be thinking, these guys must hate this class. <laughs> why, why are they even here? I could start being angry at them, resent. They didn't even do anything. They're actually enjoying it, but they're at home with their kids. They felt awkward. Their house is a mess, whatever it is. But I looked. Oh, there you go. Hi, Myra. <laughs> that wasn't a prompt. I was just sharing. So I can look to be offended. When people aren't offended, look at Myra. She's sitting in this beautiful temple room. She wasn't being offensive at all. She was very sweet. But in my mind, because I have been hurt and I wear that lens of people are here to hurt me. I carry that with me into relationships and I create my own suffering. So um, one thing is creating pain when there's no pain. She didn't mean any pain by it. And the second thing is learning to forgive people who have caused pain. And that's powerful because forgiveness, just like your handstand, forgiveness is a practice. And it's a very difficult practice. And if I've been hurt a long time ago, then I got a deep, that's like a tree with deep roots. I got to work on that even more. That's a big problem. Uh, number four, I'm quick to apologize. In one sense, number three is I'm quick to take offense. Everyone's offending me. But four is I'm oblivious to when I hurt people. I'm always telling people, I just get over it, man. Big deal. It was no big deal. Just get over it. I have to be conscious. I have to be conscious and not obtuse so much. I have to go to people and say, hey, what I said might have hurt your feelings. Please forgive me. And the more I can do that, the more I can be fine-tuned to my obtuseness, 
the more peace, joy, connection I'll have in this world. Number five, very powerful one. I see the good in others and I let them know it. This concept of appreciating people is very, very powerful, especially if you're a yoga teacher, especially if you're a parent, especially if you're a lover, probably one of us fit, we've probably fit into one of those categories that when we start to appreciate people, it allows them to step outside of themselves. I'm, I'm saying, is the, here's, here's the most basic one. There's people in our life that love us, that would do anything for us, that would do backflips for us if we asked them for it, if we asked them to. And I don't even appreciate them. Or if I do, I never tell them. That's a problem. It's a love breaker. It's a relationship breaker. And it's an illusion. It's an illusion, actually. You ever see these people, the parent would do anything for them. The kid is like, yeah, whatever. You don't even love me. You know, <laughs> it's not even based in reality. So this appreciation is a beginning to enter reality again. Um, so we, this is 1.0, okay? Appreciate the people that are good in my life. 2.0, this is the PhD in appreciation, is learning to appreciate people that are jerks. That's tough. But guess how people change? You allow access into your students or into your lovers or into your friends or into your parents, you allow access into your heart, into their heart by seeing something great in them that they can't even see in themselves. If you've ever had a person that believes in you like that, they've given you this lifeline to shed skin. It's very powerful when people love you unconditionally like that, as opposed to just being cruel and ruthless to you unconditionally so that 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 deep um seeing good in others and letting them know it very powerful and the last one is starting to keep lists of why you're fortunate why you're grateful i'm grateful and i keep a tally of how blessed i am a good practice if you suffer from a little bit of depression a little bit of melancholy a little bit of victimhood Sometimes we're just born with a body and a mind that starts to veer south. We have to notice those things and start to notice what we do, what, how we are blessed and how we are fortunate and tangibly write them down. And then when you can't think of any more, add five more. That becomes very powerful. It becomes sort of like the balancing. When my car starts to drag to the right, that gets me back on the, wait a second, here's my list. This is why I'm fortunate. I'm not saying there's no room in this world for medication, for depression and et cetera. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's very practical things within the yoga system that you can do first. Change your diet, change your lifestyle, go to bed early, wake up early, write lists that, you know, appreciate people in your life, appreciate all the, all the blessings that we have. Stop negative talk, stop consuming media. This stuff is powerful. Yeah. It actually changes you. Yeah. Those are the six and try them. Awesome. They work great. They've been tested and approved on pilgrimage. <laughs> and I mean, I, they're so important. They're so useful in life in general, but even more so right now, I think with, with what's going on in the world, it's important to have some sort of practice to keep us grounded. <clears throat> it's, it's almost like a, a necessity. Yeah. More than like, oh, it's good. I do yoga cause it's good. Yep. I do this stuff because it's a necessity. That's, yeah. And that's why, you know, that's why we started our podcast. Uh, every morning at 5 a.m. we do a podcast. Me and an old friend of mine, we were monks together. Yeah, which and is amazing, know. by the way. If, if you guys can tune in, you, you're on Apple Podcasts. And Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. It's yeah. Wisdom of the Sages. You could just go YouTube search or podcast search Wisdom of the Sages, Raghunath, it should come up. And it's a daily yoga podcast on yoga philosophy. And basically taking these ancient books and how to make them relevant, how to make them real, how to make them practical. And we have a huge group now. We have like seven, 8,000 that listen every day. Yep. And on Saturday and Sunday, we sleep until eight. Eight o'clock <laughs> is question day. Sunday, we have guests on. And then it's just me and Kastuba reading and reflecting from this ancient book 
we also do it on zoom too with about 125 people a day but um that's when if you want to join live but you don't have to join live you could instead of binge watching breaking bad or whatever people wa- binge watch we could <laughs> binge listen to sacred literature wisdom literature of india and uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and it's important. What it, the idea is that we hear truth on a regular basis, hear truth on a regular basis, and it starts to help the direction of our vehicle. And who wants to fall? Who wants to go off the rails? Over the rails? Who wants to hit the pothole? I need direction. I'm speaking. I'm not even preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. I need direction. I need good advice. I need good insight. I need good people. And so you come together, and that's the power in yoga sangha the community that lifts you up instead of dragging you down. We've all had people, situations, you know, uh, clicks that have dragged us down. And we thought, what was I doing with that person for so long? I want to go up. Life is so short. I want to, I want some significance in my life. I want to, I want to change the let go of bad habits that haven't ever satisfied me. Now's the time. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't talk your ear off. No, that's why we had you here. Thank you so much. I can just keep talking. Zeb knows. <laughs> Raghunath, thank you so much for being with us. I know you have to run. Keep up the um, good work. I've got kids. Yep. Got kids banging at my door with chickens. But all you guys, check out Wisdom of the Sages. Um, and you also run a teacher training in at your farm in New York and in India every year. 200 hour upstate New York. Mm-hmm. It's four separate week weekend immersions with uh, with homework. So you come up there, or a three hundred hour in India. That's the one you did that yeah. was special. And we also do a Kirtan Academy where you study music, uh, an Ayurvedic immersion for two weeks. Next year we're going to offer, and we do a Wisdom Literature for those who want to study the Wisdom Literature of India. And that all happens in January. Great trip. So it's much good stuff. Time. Yep. You could see that at Super Soul Yoga, Super what is it? SupersoulYoga.com, and go to the teacher trainings. Thank you so much. Super grateful. You, and check out some wisdom of the sages. Thanks so much, you guys. Have an amazing Zabby. night. Enjoy Star Wars. As <laughs> I go to bed with sweet, sweet pictures of sweet baby Krishna in my mind. Last night, I went to bed with pictures of like killing robots and. <laughs> strange beast running through my consciousness thanks very much you guys namaste namaste have a wonderful night you too you guys